Hey, and welcome to the Six Minute Mile podcast. Today, we are honored and fired up to have Jeff Galloway join us on the podcast. Jeff is truly an icon of the running world. He was an Olympian in the 10,000 meters in 1972 when his buddy Frank Shorter won gold in the marathon. A year later, Jeff invented the category of specialty running shops when he opened Fidipides and eventually expanded it to 30 stores around the country. 10 years later, Jeff wrote Galloway's book on running, which has now sold over 600,000 copies in eight languages. Many runners believe it is the finest work ever published on the art and science of running. Beyond all that, there are two parts of our conversation that left a lasting impression on us. First, Jeff tells us the story of how he eased back in the home stretch of the 1972 Olympic marathon trials to let his buddy, Jack Batchelor, pass him and claim the last spot on the Olympic team. Jeff knew he'd already secured a spot in the 10K, so he did not want to have two events while his friend was left behind. And second, we were fascinated by Jeff's views on how we can mix in a healthy dose of walking with our run training. That tactic dramatically reduces the risk of injury without sacrificing conditioning, according to Jeff. Let's jump in. Enjoy, and we'll see you out there. Well, look, I'd love to jump in with exactly what we were just chatting about with the uh, the run walk um, run method. And so um, would love to hear how you first came up with that idea and how you're applying that with all of your coached athletes now. Well, it uh, it started out by accident as a lot of these things uh, happen. I had just opened my running store, Fidipides is the name of it, and and uh, it was ni- early in 1974. And um, I, I, you know, it was premature. It was the, Fidipides was the first specialty running store in the US and maybe in the world. And there's a reason for that. There wasn't enough business to, to support it. And I was foolish enough to think that I could make this thing happen with no business training or anything else. So I opened the door and I went seat of the pants about how to get people in. Uh, and it, as it happened, the serendipity was a uh, guy who organized a local uh, course uh, courses for a university uh, came in for a pair of shoes. And he asked me in the course of this process, would I like to teach a course in beginning running and Hmm. thinking about the opportunity to bring people into the store, which I desperately needed to do. (laughs) I said, sure. So uh, I didn't know what what I was getting into. And the first group um, of 22 um, were definitely all beginners. I mean, they, they had never done anything more than run down the driveway, if that. So, and sorry, this was this a, um, a high school or a local college? It was uh, actually Florida State University. I started oh, my store, Fidipides, in Tallahassee, and uh, it was Florida State University uh, course offerings. So, um, as I conducted the first workout, and what I did is I, I told everybody to meet first at a local park. And uh, what we did um, after that is go over to the store. But that, that first day, there were naturally three groups that the larger group broke, in, broke into as we did uh, a nice gentle 
run walk around the local park. So I, I could really identify three groups based on current fitness levels. And so I had each group come to my store on a different day so that I could run with them. And what I did from the very beginning is listen for huffing and puffing. And if anybody in the group started to huff and puff, we took a walk break until the huffing and puffing went away. So that was how it started. Um, and then I started collecting data on it right away. Um, and within four years, we had a number of the beginners in these classes that started to beat veteran runners in races by using the uh, strategic walk breaks. Now, I didn't have as coordinated a pattern then because I really didn't have the data to, to, to back it up. So I kept collecting the data and tried certain strategies and then I continuously adjusted it. So now we have more than half a million instances of people who came to me with a problem. I gave them solutions, including a run, walk, run strategy. And then more than half a million uh, people now have gotten back to me to tell me how it works. So this is an evidence-based method that's based on what run, walk, run strategy works by pace per mile. And when you say you collected data, what type of data were you collecting back then? I was just tabulating and writing down, uh, especially at first before computers, right. uh, what amount of running and what amount of walking people were using in order to run certain times, first in races. And then I started looking at, well, how can we slow people down on long runs? And by adjusting the run, walk, run, it was the very best way. And here's a, a dirty little secret. I have now had thousands of people that had various problems and came to me with that. And uh, I've had, because they had an orthopedic issue, I had them walk the entire distance of all of their long runs through the whole season, including a lot of marathoners. And almost every single one of them was able to run strong, even in the marathon, even though all of their long ones had been done walking. So, so if you had a 20 miler you needed to do on Sunday morning, you'd have them walk 20 miles. Yes. And I, I guarantee you um, that, that you just don't lose any endurance by walking the entire distance. Now it takes a long time, but, sure. and that's, that's the, the thing, but you've got to go for the distance that you want to do during the race. And, and if you build up to that, you're going to have the endurance to go that distance. Very, and uh, so that, that's why they need uh, podcasts for those 20 mile walks, right? That's exactly right. That is absolutely <laughs> you're, true. You're, you're cross-selling your podcast series. I love it. Um, and so what? Now what's, what's the biggest objection? I would imagine some of the chest thumping uh, tough guy runners would say, boy, I'm, I'm a runner. I'm not a walker. What are you, what are you talking about, Galloway? When we learn to run, you, and most people learn to run uh, in PE class in school at, at a young time in life, and those lessons that are learned in, in uh, PE class and in team sports are hardwired in your brain because they're the first ones, and, and they're hardwired, and it becomes a very 
strong type of behavior pattern. Now, what I learned when I, I learned all this when I had to do the research for my book, Mental Training. Okay. And, and what, what happens then when you are trained to run nonstop the way most runners have been, uh, especially competitive runners, what happens when you try something like run, walk, run at first is the ancient part of your brain where that behavior pattern is stored. This is the uh, subconscious emotional reflex brain, sometimes called the monkey brain. Uh, this ancient brain that has these hardwired behavior patterns, if that behavior pattern is not conducted, then that ancient brain sends out negative hormones that make you feel anxious and then you feel like you're a failure or whatever it is that that it does. Now, the bottom line there is that we have another brain, uh, another brain operating system. We, we operate with these two independent operating systems. There's the ancient brain and then there's the human brain. The human brain is the conscious brain. It is the uh, logical brain, the strategic brain, uh, the executive brain. And if you activate the human brain, it overrides the monkey brain. And that allows you to change your behavior. But sadly, a lot of people don't want to change their behavior or don't want to uh, use their human brain when they run. And as a result, they keep getting dumped with these negative hormones. So they keep trying to run nonstop as they get older and things break. And I guarantee they will break with running nonstop at some age uh, or some speed. Uh, because the human body wasn't designed to run nonstop. I learned this from a very insightful book called Story of the Human Body. Hmm. It talks about the six million years of evolution that uh, our ancestors went through, and now we're going through it too. <laughs> the tip of the iceberg we are. Uh, but the bottom line, as cited in the book, is that our ancient ancestors when they started moving forward to find food, um, they walked everywhere and, right. and, and they could run and, and did run to get away from a predator or to jump over a snake or, you know, something like that. And later they used running in short segments to hunt down and run down game. Okay. This becomes a very important part of our human development, by the way, but for the first 4 million years, of uh, our existence, our ancestors didn't run because they regularly starved to death. And, and, the, and the anthropologists believe that there's no way that they would have run long distances and used up the resources when they were starving all the time. Uh, so, so they walked everywhere because walking is such an efficient mode. So we're designed to walk uh, just continually, day after day, night after night. And, and so we're, we are, designed to be amazing endurance athletes walking. Not so much running, but uh, the period of time between 2 million and 1 million years ago is the time period when our ancestors started hunting down game and developing strategies to do that. And the prominent strategy as identified by 
quite a few of the anthropologists that studied that era. It's called persistence hunting. Basically okay. what it is, is run, walk, run. They would run a little bit, spook the animal, the animal would take off in a sprint. The uh, ancestors would creep up. And by the way, the way that a lot of anthropologists have documented this is they have discovered this pattern of hunting still in use among primitive peoples around the world. And it made absolute perfect sense according to archeological evidence and uh, anthropological evidence too. So they would run, walk, run, walk, run, walk until the animal who doesn't have sweat glands would overheat and keel over and then dinner would be served. So run, walk, run is really uh, part of the reason why we're here today. <laughs> Well, and so McDougal gets into that in Born to Run, right? But I, I think he portrays it a little bit differently. He, he makes it sound as if it's a long, slow run chasing down this game. But what you're yeah, saying makes more sense, does. I think, which is the run, walk, run thing makes more sense than somebody Well, you know, a... you can certainly do that. But uh, you have to go back and look at the uh, type of existence that our ancient ancestors had. Uh, as they were developing this. And they were regularly starving to death and, and they really uh, couldn't deal very well with the predators in Africa, you know, you lions, tigers, we're talking about serious things. So they would go out hunt in the middle of the day when it was super, super hot. But we have sweat glands, humans have sweat glands. Right. Of them. And uh, animals don't. So short amounts of running followed by walking to recover allowed our ancestors to creep up on the game and then they got heat stroke and uh, and we're around because they got food. <laughs> Very interesting. Now, so that ties in now you mentioned longevity and running and as we get older we shouldn't be so stubborn to cling to I need to go out for this six mile run. This is I'm not going to run walk run I'm going to run six miles. Um, you, you've written a book uh, entitled Running Until You're 100. Is that meant to be kind of a euphemism or do you mean that literally that you think you can train humans to run till they're 100? Oh, I'm convinced I can train runners to run 100, not every single human, but sure. I, I, I can tell you that uh, a, a majority of people can run in some form using my method as they get older. Uh, I have two of my e-coach clients. One of them has a mother who is in her late 90s and another one, uh, a mother that just turned 100. And uh, both of those ladies uh, are using short, short little shuffle runs as part of their workout and they're still in the game. And, and this is what I wanna do. This is my goal. I wanna run until I'm 100. And it doesn't, it's not going to matter to me how much I'm running, how much I'm walking, or how I'm doing it. Running turns on the circuits in the brain for a better attitude, for more vitality, for personal empowerment, better than anything. And you can see this uh, in the 80 plus runners that you meet at races. Yes. I've talked to several hundred of them over the years, and almost to a person, these 80 plus year old distance runners are as mentally sharp and have as much energy as any 30 year old that I meet. It, it's simply what running does for you. And sadly, a lot of runners who get locked into this, well, I'm never gonna take a walk break. 
either get so injured that they cannot run anymore, or they're so burned out and tired when they go out for a run that they can't enjoy those mental benefits. On the other hand, even very short amounts of running, even five to 10 seconds of running followed by 30 seconds of walking will deliver those brain benefits. And, and the surprising thing is a lot of runners go significantly faster with run, walk, run. The average improvement in races has been more than 13 minutes in a marathon and more than seven minutes faster in a half. I love it. I did the, um, the Mount Washington road race in New Hampshire a few years back. And of course I was, I was stubborn and I, I was, I'm going to run. I've heard people walk toward the summit and I'm no way I'm running the entire thing. And to call it a run wasn't really, I was lifting my knees up and down, but, uh, I, probably about a half mile from the summit, this woman passed me walking and she was probably 30 years older than I was. I'm like, wow, okay, yeah, maybe this run thing is not the most efficient way to get up this mountain right now. So it, it works. I believe you on the, on the net faster times doing run, walk, run. Yeah, the, the first time that I ever used it in a race uh, was actually during my competitive career in the late 70s. I was running a, in a race at altitude uh, it was uh, started at 7,000 feet and went up to 10,500 feet. And I was coming from sea level. So, you know, I was clearly at a disadvantage because there were a number of uh, high altitude runners in I that bet. race. Yeah. Uh, well, was that Pikes Peak? No, it was uh, Mount St. Mary's race. Uh, okay. That, that was the name of it. Uh, in any case, um, I didn't win the race uh, because there were a couple of guys that were really hardcore and fast endurance uh, athletes at altitude, but I finished third and beat uh, several people that were running faster than I was at that time at various races. So uh, I knew that uh, my run, walk, run was working. And I, I ran into one of them just about two years later, which was uh, 40 some years after I'd run that race. And I had never seen him after that race. And he was the hotshot guy in Colorado at that time. And he actually had times, was running times in uh, half marathons and marathons that were faster than mine at that time. Uh, but he said, you know, I was creeping up on you and I got within three miles of the finish and I saw you walk and I said, I've got him now. So you walk and then you take off and you get farther ahead of me. <laughs> well, and you said something fascinating a minute ago about how running uniquely builds that mental acuity. And we just had two great chats in the last week or so. Uh, one with Lynn Rathjen, you may have seen his story, a 75-year-old runner, just uh, ran a 559 mile as a 75-year-old. And then we caught up with Roger Robinson, who's who's still running strong at 81, um, and totally agree. In both of those cases, you, you you know you would think these guys mentally are 30, 35 years old. But what is it about running that's that uniquely enhances that sort of brain computing power versus working out in a gym or uh, I don't know, other lifting weights or other physical activities? The source book is called Spark. S-P-A-R-K by uh, Dr. John Rady. Uh, and uh, the, the whole thing about this book is, is he is a 
uh, neuroscientist uh, and a psychiatrist uh, who studies the effect of exercise on the brain. And he documents the research. Uh, it's a fabulous book. It's just rock solid on the research. He explains what happens with those circuits when you exercise and then what the brain hormones are that help deliver some of these things that we look for. So there are two different systems going on. One is the actual turn on of these interconnecting places in the brain that they call a circuit. And then uh, the other thing is the hormones that are delivered to make us feel better and, and be more empowered to take on challenges and so forth. Uh, and so just to summarize, the uh, 30 minutes is, is sort of a magic amount of time to be mm -hmm. out there uh, because it sort of takes the, the body and the brain to get into sync over a, approximately a 30 minute period. And they've documented this with the release of hormones. For example, if you're agitated when you go out for a run, uh, after around 30 minutes, you start getting dumped with the calming hormones, uh, norepinephrine, melatonin, serotonin, a few others. Uh, and then if you need the pep up, you need the empowerment, the empowerment circuit gets turned on and then you get a whole new set of hormones that, that come in from that. Uh, but all this is theorized to go back to our evolution. Our ancestors survived because they were able to bring home uh, uh, meat from those hunts or food, uh, you know, from going farther on one of their run walk runs. And so when they were faced with challenges on these things, the, the brain had to respond and ultimately it, uh, it created these circuits up there and, and the hormone doses that we experience now to our benefit. But the studies show that running delivers these hormones and the activation of the circuits to the highest level. All exercises deliver that to some extent though. Very interesting. Well, I um, had an old friend of mine who was a super masters tennis player. And he said, um, you know, the 75 and older category he said, we'd, we'd do okay physically. The biggest challenge, every time we switched courts after two games, we'd kind of look at each other and said, who, who, Who's leading this match? What's the score again? <laughs> so, uh, so ten, you know, well, that's is another than... good thing that running does. Uh, uh, again, any exercise can deliver benefits, uh, but running delivers the brain benefits higher than than ever. And to your point, the other studies that show dramatic uh, increases are the studies on the hippocampus in the brain. The hippocampus is the center for learning for memory and for new growth of brain cells. And uh, it's definitely been shown thousands of studies worldwide that exercise in general, but running to the highest level causes a creation of new brain stem cells. Um, you know, if you do the exercise regularly, it's due to a brain hormone called BDNF. So not not only does this brain hormone, which is called miracle growth for the brain, cause the uh, creation of new brain stem cells, but uh, that hormone nurtures the little baby stem cells into the actual operation of the brain so that they stay permanent. And it, it's a, 
a wonderful set of uh, research areas that are showing that endurance running gives you incredible amounts of benefit. I, I did a TED talk a couple of years ago and in my research, I found a study, uh, a recent study at the time that showed that in three days of running, you, uh, the uh, people who were in the study grew over 100,000 new brain, uh, brain cells, new neurons. So there's, you know, there's help with the memory too. I love it. Um, so you mentioned this research that you've done. I want to take you back, um, way back to the eighties when you, um, when you first wrote Galloway's book on running, which I think, uh, if that's not the most popular book on running ever, it's gotta be one of the top two or three, but it's the most popular training book. Okay. Uh, and, and actually right at this moment, it's about to be republished in the third edition that's going to have all the updates in it. And that's not going to come out until the spring, but we are really looking forward to it. Oh, that's great. Because you've sold, uh, last count I saw, it was over 600,000 copies of uh, Galloway's yeah, book. Yeah, it's over 750,000 now. Oh, uh, beautiful. At $100 a copy, that's that's uh, the, uh, flowing right to your bottom line. That's good. It's not $100. <laughs> it's a popular book. <laughs> Don't I if, wish? <laughs> if only. But um, so how do you, obviously at that point, um, you'd had a great running career or were in the midst of a great running career. You were an Olympian. Um, you'd thought about the sport. Obviously, you take a really thoughtful approach to it. But how did you conduct the research to do that without, let's say, a PhD in physiology? Uh, how, how did you, what was the source of most of your research for Galloway's book on running? Well, at first, uh, and I'll have to tell you why I even wanted to take this tact and, uh, and to open up my store and so forth. And it was actually the year after my Olympics in Munich. Uh, I had uh, taught school for a year thinking that uh, classroom teaching would be my profession, but it wasn't for me. I mean, it just hmm. didn't match up with my personality. So I was just looking for something else. My best friend in life was the number three employee at Nike. And uh, for the Nike company, he actually worked for Blue Ribbon Sports before Nike and, and just uh, uh, dovetailed right into Nike as it changed names. But he managed a Nike store in Eugene. What's his name? I, uh, Jeff Hollister. Oh, sure. He was all over uh, Shoe Dog. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he he was there right from day one with, with the company because he uh, did all this. stuff. He was uh, one of uh, Bill Bowerman's athletes at U of O and he and and uh, Bowerman liked him. Uh, and he also realized that he was a hard worker. So he would just dump stuff on him to, to be a gopher for this, a gopher for that. So he got in the middle of everything that Bill was doing and then parlayed that right into working for the company. And one of the things he did is, is open up their first running store, excuse me, their first company store in Eugene. It wasn't okay. a running store. It was an all sports store. So they sold all sports. They had clothing and they had a bunch of other stuff there too. Um, I wanted to do a running store. And so, uh, the, and the way it happened was uh, I was on, I made the U.S. national team the year after the Olympics and I traveled to uh, the USSR and ran against the Russians and uh, to Africa, ran against the Africans there. 
and uh, a few other places, uh, mostly in Europe. Uh, but we were, we were on this tour for eight weeks. And uh, so we had a lot of downtime at the dining halls and the restaurants, wherever sure. we were. And you just sit around and you talk to athletes. And there were a number of others on that team that were going through transitions in their professional life. They were trying to figure out what to do. And so we talked, we talked a lot about that. And, and what evolved during that eight week period was a desire that I had to be able to help others benefit from the amazing things that I found that running did for me. Hmm. Because I went from a fat kid to an Olympic athlete. It took a long time to do that. And uh, I uh, had been able then to start working with people just incidentally to help them get into running. And the store crystallized that. My Fidipity store became a running center where people could come get information. We did clinics. We had runs out of there starting in 1973. And um, it, it just all evolved based on what people needed. Uh, and so once I started realizing that this was a business, I needed to document some things. So I would start doing charts first of the people in my classes. Mm -hmm. Then I started doing um, tear sheets whenever I would... Uh, talk to somebody on the phone or get a letter from somebody, I'd put them into file folders and then I'd go back through the file folders every two weeks, four weeks, whatever, and compile the things on uh, run, walk, run and whatever else I was looking for at the time. Uh, but I kept those, those uh, file folders around for 20 years. And unfortunately we had a flood in my basement and I lost those original file folders. I, I was it it was I was sick because oh it was man, really a wonderful uh, part of my history. But anyway, that's how it started. And then ever since that time, we have been able to uh, use our computers to document uh, the data as it flows in. So that was so a lot of that came a lot of the research for the book came from that, and then intersplicing your own life experience and training experience and what had worked for you and quizzing your buddies and the Frank Shorters of the world and Jeff Hollister's and, and Prefontaine, who was a very good friend of mine and, and uh, was a treasury to our sport, even though sometimes he was his own worst enemy and PR wise, but uh, uh, great history, wonderful history. And uh, I'm actually uh, doing some podcasts now called You Can Do It, that uh, sort of bring out the stories of that era. Oh, and, such a golden era. But, and and uh, Pre obviously had a, a different outlook on the world and different outlook on the sport. So did you draw from some of his thoughts for your book? Oh, I, I uh, didn't draw from, my, from his experience so much in, in Galloway's book on running. Uh, but I did draw from the uh, way he ran and uh, the tenacity that he had and the, the mental, uh, the positive mental attitude that he had. Uh, it, it was really fascinating to me to uh, read some articles on Muhammad Ali. Uh, hmm. and, and one of them was written by a uh, mentor of his. And uh, 
when Muhammad Ali, before he was Muhammad Ali, he was Cassius Clay. Sure. And uh, he came into this gym in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and he was scared to death, but wanting to prove himself. And he was able to get some good mentorship from people. And he learned how, of course, in, in the boxing world, you can bluff your way through a lot of things. And, and he started doing that. He started telling people that he was going to beat them. And he had no business beating these people. But he actually started convincing the others that Cassius Clay was going to beat them, you know? And, and right. it, it, it really uh, brings up uh, another part of my brain research that went into my mental training book. And that is about the belief circuit in your brain. That's another circuit. It's uh, a very powerful circuit, uh, the belief circuit. Uh, and it, it involves the placebo effect. If you believe in something very strongly uh, and, and you keep your mental focus in that uh, theme of believing I can do it, even though you may not have the physical capability, that circuit in the brain starts looking for other ways that can get you to that goal. It's a very mm. powerful circuit and uh, it will find other resources inside of you. And in the case of Prefontaine, he was simply able to gut it out longer than most of his competitors were. Uh, unfortunately, at the very top level, he was not as fast as a number of those other runners, but by gutting it out and making those others hurt early, he discouraged them. And he was a great example. And uh, I have used his example in many of my talks and in many of my writings. And how do, how do you recommend that people handle that belief uh, circuit, as you described it, when they miss their goals, right? I say, hey, I really want to run a sub three hour marathon. I know I can do it. My training's on track and then you go out and run 307. And then, so what does that do to that brain circuit? Well, it's up to the individual. Uh, if, if you give up on your goal, that's your problem. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there hadn't been a single great athlete that I've met when I've talked to them about their training and their running who hasn't had major downturns in their performance. And um, almost every one of them has, have told me that uh, that's how they learned. They, they learned everything from their mistakes and, and, and everything from the times when they didn't do well, because then it stimulated them to look into what can I do better? And they found those ways because we have the capacity to do that. Uh, now, uh, the other issue, though, is, is the goal realistic? Yes. And, and that's, that's very important because uh, most of the people that I've coached, when they have told me stories just like you stated there, I, I trained, I was ready for this goal. And so I ask them, how do you know you were ready? Well, uh, you know, I just know I was ready. I, I yeah, my half marathon time was pretty good. And yeah. My buddy, you know does this and I train with them all the time. I said, well, maybe you don't have your buddy's genetics. I mean, it, it's 
it's certain that you don't have your buddy's genetics. I mean, you have right. different ones and you may have better, you may have worse, or you may have different capabilities in other areas. But the important thing to start with is what is a realistic goal? And you'll see this in uh, a lot of my books, yes. uh, but it's called the magic mile. It's an assessment tool to tell you what your current potential would be. And again, it's based on um, a, a pretty large database of uh, over 80,000 people who have reported in their fastest magic mile time during a season, and then their fastest times at other races during that same season. So crunching the numbers, we've come up with a very accurate way to tell people what their current potential is. And you can access this free at jeffgalloway.com. Uh, you plug in your magic mile time, but you can also back it out from using times in other races to tell you what, how to leapfrog to a different race and see what your potential is there. Uh, but you do need that, that data to be able to tell you where you're starting from. Now, if you're starting from a certain magic mile time at the beginning of the season, it is certainly appropriate to predict that you will improve through training. I mean, that's what training sure. is about. Uh, so how much uh, could you improve? Well, I've studied that one too. And uh, what it amounts to is usually around 3%. But even those that improve more than, than average, it's only usually around 5%. But that's still a lot of time in a half marathon or a marathon. You can do the math on it, but sure. A 12 minute per mile pace person in a marathon, I think we're still talking about 10 minutes faster in a marathon. I mean, that's a pretty good improvement. So, but when you say magic mile, go out today, run your fastest mile that you can run, and that's sort of your baseline measurement? The first magic mile should not be all out. Okay. You should work into that first magic mile. Uh, start out. Um, maybe about your average pace that you run on an average day. And then during the last half or quarter mile, you could pick it up a little bit, but you don't want to injure yourself by running too fast right. too soon. This is a theme in everything that I talk about. Now, once you've run your first one, then your mission is to beat the time that you did in your last best magic mile. And so you go through a season strategically getting faster at your magic mile. And by the end of the season, most people are very predictable in what their finish time ends up being if the weather's right. But uh, it, it's, it, you just go to my uh, computation function and you'll see what current potential would be after that second or third magic mile that you would do. And uh, then by the end of the season, it's a good assessment tool to use for pacing yourself in the race itself. And so I would, had, yeah, go ahead. Well, mm -hmm. I was just gonna add, so for a, a novice runner, or let's say somebody coming back from an injury, they, they would imagine be able to beat that three to 5% improvement metric. But the 3% realistic goal is for somebody who's, who already has a, a decent base of fitness and conditioning. Is that, am I thinking about that the right way? Yes, uh, but I will say that even somebody who is beginning, if they take 
a couple of extra months in the training schedule to get up to speed, they would still have a goal even from the first day that they start back. Okay. But, but once you get into uh, the third or fourth magic mile, it gets to be increasingly be more predictable and, uh, and accurate in predicting what your potential would be in your goal race. I see, I see. So it's not based on that first, you know, jog 800 meters, you know, no. run a little faster 800 meters time. No, it's, I not, got you. it's not based on the first one. It's, it's after the third or the fourth one that you can I really see. start that getting down to brass tacks on that. Yeah. Um, you reminded me of a question that's uh, stuck in my head for, for years, but uh, I know I've, uh, I, I live in Boston <laughs> and for the Boston Marathon, even though we've got 35,000 runners per year, there are fewer people who finish sub three hours now with 35,000 runners than there used to be back when there were 5,000 runners. And that's, that phenomenon has always fascinated me, but I'd, I'd love to get your take on that. What, you know, it's not, not the percentage is lower today. The actual number um, of runners sub three is lower today than it was 20 years ago. But I'd love to get your perspective on that. What, how, how could that possibly be true? Well, I mean, potentially, we could certainly have a whole lot more people running below three if they were willing to train that hard. But I will tell you that the trend now is increasingly in the direction of what I was talking about, about the brain circuits. People mm -hmm. in the era you're talking about and before were mostly male. They were mostly uh, 30 somethings or below or and they were interested in their times. That, that was not the number one goal. It was the only goal that most people had. Right, right. Uh, so but things have shifted. I, I mean, uh, today, probably about 10 percent of the running population is interested in time goals. I mean, seriously. Uh, so you're not going to have the numbers that you had back then who were really trying to bust a gut in order to get uh, below three hours. Is that a bad thing that, that a marathon is not a race? I know that sounds crazy to say that, but is that is that bad in your opinion that, that people fewer people are racing it and more? Heck no. Heck no. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing about running from the time that I started running, which was 1958, when there were, there was, there were maybe three or four adults in Atlanta who ran in 1958, and we <laughs> knew right? who they were. I mean, uh, running was was nothing. But all three of those adults who were running were very fast for their age, and uh, they would be fast now for their age yeah. uh, because that was it for them. That that was why they were running. It was a sport. But right from the beginning also, I started seeing every year a growing number of people who were in it for the running enjoyment and, and the social aspect. And that is only increasing. The bottom line on this and my summary statement about this is that one of the most wonderful things about running is that each runner is the captain of her or his own ship. And they have every right to determine what their goal is on any given day 
and to pursue whatever goal they want to if it doesn't interfere with another runner. And so those who want to run for time and competition, I'm all for them doing How about that. It? Right, right. But, you know, nobody should ever berate anybody for another running goal because it's each person who determines that. Absolutely. No, that's great perspective. And, uh, and I want to bring you back to a comment you said where you said uh, you said you were a fat kid uh, who then eventually went on to become an Olympian. Um, we're, we're probably not. It's probably politically incorrect to call uh, even ourselves a fat kid. I was I was a fat kid, too. But and uh, but how did you how did that journey go for you, you for you from chubby kid to a pretty good high school runner, a better collegiate runner and an outstanding Olympian? Well, I, I'm only saying a fat kid because not only did I realize that I was fat at that time, uh, I, don't, I don't know whether I was clinically obese or not, but I could have been. Uh, but my dear mother, who was a saint, told me years later that I was indeed a fat kid. And if my mother, the saint, is going to tell me that. Anyway, enough said about that. Uh, now. Uh, my story uh, is that my dad was in the Navy and uh, we traveled constantly. Uh, he got out of active duty service in the Navy when I entered the eighth grade. I had gone, that was the school I entered was the 14th school. So I, I was bouncing wow. all over the place and never got into any regular exercise or any teams or anything. And I learned to eat a lot and uh, I gained a lot of weight. Uh, so, uh, but I was also lazy because some well-meaning PE coaches tried to get me to exercise and it was too much and it hurt and I equated exercise with hurting and I shied away from it. Well, reality hit when I entered the eighth grade because the new school that I was entering required all boys to go out for sports after school. And uh, I tried football the first quarter and it was a total disaster. Okay. I mean, I had zero skills, even though I was big enough to literally throw my weight around, I didn't have the muscular development or any of that to make right. it. Work. Right. And, uh, and, you know, I was laughed at and all that sort of stuff. So, but I had uh, gravitated in my home room to with a group of kids that were runners and I gravitate because they were funny and they were clever and uh, I, I just liked hanging around them and they encouraged me to come out for winter cross country and I said oh no that's gonna hurt and they said no no it, here's the deal the the cross country coach is the most lenient in school and you can lie to him what you tell him is that you're going to go out to the trails which were just off the track you run on the trails in the woods and, and all you actually do is run to the edge of the woods and hide out in the woods so that you don't have to do any running. Uh, so I did that for the first couple of days and got busted by an older kid. But um, as we started running together in that group, my whole world changed. I mean to tell you, my world was really in turmoil in that highly competitive academic school with all the deficits I had in my training coming through, I was at the bottom of my class. And, and I, I truly believe that I was in a 
intellectually inferior to, to those other kids. But as soon as we got on these runs together, uh, I would uh, start entering in on the discussions and the, the arguments that you get into when you're in a running group. Sure. And I realized that my reasoning was not any worse than theirs. And they were on the honor roll and I was not. I mean, it totally reset my expectations, but it did more than that because after every run, even the runs when I was destroyed, my spirit felt better. My brain was working better. I had more energy to do my homework and I made my way to the honor roll also. But the other thing was acceptance. As soon as I started running regularly with these kids, I had friends. I had sure. never had that before. I was the new kid in class 14 different times. Man. People shy away from you. As soon as I showed myself willing to go out there and try to go the distance, I was respected by all the other runners there. It's something that you see in all running groups. Absolutely. It changed my life. And so even though I did not progress fast at all. As a matter of fact, I didn't even qualify to make it into the state championships in Georgia until my senior year. I worked hard for five long years before I even got to the state championships. I certainly had no predictions that I would ever go up to the next level. And uh, so anyway, I, it, it was just a wonderful thing to continue to go forward a little bit each year by not giving up. Amazing. And so then, um, and then you went off to school up in the North, up in New England, you went to Wesleyan and not, uh, not a division one running powerhouse. If you, if you'd stayed at an SEC school, let's say, but you knew at that point you wanted to continue running. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it was social. Uh, to a large extent. It was the runners were my social life and th they were wonderful. Uh, every group that I have run with, wonderful group of people. Um, but more than that, um, I was getting all of those brain benefits every time I ran and I didn't have any clue as to why this was. All I knew was that when I was stressed out and I went out on a run, I wasn't stressed out. I could confront my challenges again. And when I was up against uh, uh, an academic uh, or social problem that I didn't know what to do with, things started melting after my run. And I started realizing, hey, I can deal with this. I, I, I don't know what to do, but I can deal with it. And, and on and on. And, and so, yeah, I was in it for the long haul. Uh, now, at, at Wesleyan, uh, at that time period, there were only two divisions. There was a university division where, which is now division one. Okay. And then there was a college division. Uh, and the college division wasn't small schools. It was any school that wanted to not give scholarships for running. And, and there were some other regulations too, but there were some huge schools of over 30,000 people and Wesleyan had 1,200. <laughs> so, you know, it was a, a mis mismatch of, uh, of different size uh, colleges. Uh, but, you know, um, 
I uh, I did not get any college scholarships offered to me, and and I went to Wesleyan for academic reasons, and it is totally serendipitous that my roommate ends up being Ambie Burfoot. Amazing. And then and I I tutored Bill Rogers in geometry when he was having trouble with that, and we all ran together. And it was just a wonderful time in our lives. And it's still wonderful. The friendships are still wonderful. And so Bill was, he was a, he was a freshman when you and Ambie were seniors. Ambie was actually a year behind me. Okay. But you're correct. When I was a senior, Bill was a freshman. And you were all buddies. Say that again. You were all buddies. You all hung out together and trained together. Absolutely. Oh yeah. 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 And, um, and Bill is a is a character and a half today. He must have been even more so as an 18, 19 year old kid. Well, he's pretty much the same. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, you, you you meet Bill, and uh, what you see is what you get, and what you got back then. He's just honest, open. He'll just tell you what he's thinking, and he will talk right right to you it it does not matter uh you know he's just a good guy my uh, my only bill rogers story is i was i uh, ran in the first ever uh baa half marathon which was a great race we actually did a lap around the interior of fenway park when they first launched this race and uh and i don't know we're, we're probably three or four miles from the finish and i'm clipping along doing okay from for my my old guy standards and and bill rogers passes me on uh, over my left shoulder i thought huh wow, I had a pretty good race going. I was, I was ahead of Bill Rogers for 10 miles. So afterwards I, I wound up bumping into him. I said, Hey, um, what was going on? We, we, you know, you shouldn't have been behind me for the first 10 miles. So, oh man, I was standing at the starting line and the, I saw the, the nicest guy. I'd never met him before. And he, and he had flip-flops on, but he had a bib. And I said, are you going to run in flip-flops? He's like, no, you'll never believe this bill, but I forgot my shoes at home. He's like, well, what, what size are you? The guy says, well, 10 and a half, like, same as me. I've got a pair in my trunk. So Bill, the, the gun goes off. Bill goes the other direction, runs through his trunk, gets a pair of 10 and a half running shoes, hands them to the total stranger. And then Bill sets off on the race. He's probably the last guy to cross the line. But that always left a great impression on me. I was like, what, what, you know, to your point, that's what this sport ought to be about, right? That's Bill. Yeah. And then uh, um, we, we, could, we could spend two hours on the, on the 72 trials and the Olympic experience. But what and just the amazing, um, amazing story there, which, uh, which I, I hope is all true about you sort of uh, easing up a little bit to let your buddy Jack Batchelor um, make sure that he was going to make the marathon team since you had already qualified for the 10,000. But, um, but what, what sticks out about that whole experience that the 72 trials training together with, with, uh, with Jack and Frank Shorter and, um, What's were there a couple of facts from there that that jump out that the best memories from that era? Well, uh, I, I have to pitch my podcast that yes. is produced by my son Weston, uh, which chronicles these stories and more, uh, and has time for a lot of really interesting details about this whole period. Uh, I saw that, it, and we'll link out to that. From our well, side, it's for incredibly sure. uh, unlikely uh, that that I would have made the rise, even within the last three weeks, because I I hadn't qualified for the 10K uh, until I left Vail, um, and uh, that was 
three weeks before the Olympic trials uh, that I uh, left Vail, uh, I only had one chance to qualify. It was in the National AAU Championships and I had to run a minute and a half PR. Wow. And uh, hey, I believed I could. I believed in the altitude training. I believed that I could. I had a great day in Seattle for the AAU and I ran two minutes PR. So I qualified unexpectedly. And, and then a whole series of things just happened. But what happened in uh, my helping of, of uh, Jack, Jack Batchelor, uh, Jack had been our best runner, distance runner in the 68 Olympics. He had qualified for the final. He was our only distance runner to qualify for the final in Mexico City. Uh, and he was the founder of our track club. I was a member of the Florida Track Club. Okay. Uh, and he was a great resource for, for me. I mean, I learned so much from him, uh, just about, uh, you know, what goes on and what you need to do in races and, you know, just all types of stuff. Uh, and, and also the, the strength, uh, internal strength that you get from running with somebody like him uh, that, that really carries over later into your competition. So anyway, all that said, uh, the 10K comes, it's a hot day. Uh, I was ranked about 12th, very unlikely I was gonna make the team, but the temperature was about 90 degrees. Okay. It was, it was blistering hot at the start. And I trained in Florida for two years. So I knew darn well that it would be suicidal competitively for me to go out with the leaders. And uh, that wasn't my style anyway. I, sure. I would start from behind, but I had a pace in mind that I thought would be sustainable. And so I went out at that pace and that put me in last place. I was in last place for a full mile. And then they started coming back to me. Okay. Due to the heat and uh, the pace that, that a lot of people do when they get into an Olympic trials. Right. So I passed uh, a guy uh, right at the mile mark and then started looking at the next one that was coming back to me. And I passed one and then I looked for the next one. And um, after four and a half miles, I uh, decided to do an accounting because I didn't know where I was. And I realized that I was in third place behind uh, Frank Chorter, my teammate, and uh, Jack Batchelor, my teammate. And about a couple laps later, I passed Jack, finished second. Now, Frank and I had just finished. We turned around. We uh, saw Jack on the back stretch coming around the final curve in third place. It looked like the Florida Track Club was going to sweep the three, three for three. Love it. But there was a guy coming up on Jack, and he was very strong. His name, John Anderson. He was the son of the mayor of Eugene. And, of course, he was the local favorite by uh, landslide. I bet. And he was responding to their cheering. It, it was the, the, the only cheering that I've ever heard that was louder than that was at Boston. You know, uh... but other than that. It was just amazing and, and energizing to those that are responding. But Jack was exhausted. He had gone out too fast and he was losing it. And uh, around 35 yards from the finish, he got passed by John. But Jack was so exhausted that he was weaving on the track. Oh, and man. he bumped John as John went by. And an old AAU official disqualified Jack for bumping him. I mean, there was no harm done. Uh, John Anderson went up later and said, I 
I have no protest. There's no reason why Jack should be disqualified, but the official persisted and Jack was disqualified. Now that year, the trials were run in a different format. They were run exactly as they would be run in Munich, which meant that mm. the marathon was a week after the 10K trials. Okay. And so uh, the significance of Jack being disqualified was that if I had run the, well, I was going to run the, the marathon trials anyway, because it was my better event uh, a week later. But if I ended up qualifying the marathon, I would have dropped out of the 10K and allowed Jack to move up. Um, but that was no longer possible because Jack was disqualified. I see. So Very interesting. Jack and yeah. I ran together that next week and we uh, gradually formulated a plan based on pace uh, to get us into the mix for a third place finish. Jack had two things going against him. He'd only run about 17 miles as his longest run. Ever. And at that level, that's not enough. And the second thing is he had a terrible tendency to go out too fast mm -hmm. in racing. And that's what got him into trouble in the 10K. Well, I've always been a pacing metronome. And so I went out with Jack and, and we were in about 100th place at the mile. By five miles, we had moved up to 61st place. And we just very, very gradually, I gradually, strategically figured out how we could move up and, and the pacing made sure it was right so that we wouldn't uh, get too tired. And uh, 21 miles, we moved into a tie for third place. And at that point, it was rather bizarre because I had paced myself really well and Jack was beginning to feel that exhaustion for having run only 17 miles into that race. Okay. Right. I had to keep pumping him up and being a cheerleader and being a lookout to make sure nobody was coming up on us. We entered the stadium together and the crowd was on their feet thinking this was going to be a horse race for that third position that was still remaining. And I had the greatest sense of power that I've ever had in running because I was on, the only person in that stadium that knew how that race was going to end. <laughs> Jack was exhausted, but I ran right with him and and then I dropped back right at the finish line. And I'll have to tell you to this day, helping a friend qualify for the Olympics was the greatest thrill in my whole running career. It was ah, I love that answer. Wow. And did he trust you the whole way or, were, you know, at the 10 mile mark when he was in 30th place or so? Or did he elbow you and say, hey, Galloway, this is this is too slow. We got to go. We got to go. Oh, yeah. He said stuff like that. And and uh, I. Uh, I initially had to grab his shirt a couple of times uh, because he was trying to, to edge ahead. And, and then he, he expressed some real anxieties, uh, you know, around 10 miles or so. We're too far. We're so far behind and so forth. And I, I kept having to reassure him. I said, you know, it's a hot day and, uh, and we're going to get these people to come back to us and, uh, and stuff like that. And, you know, we just kept having this interchange. And he ended up believing me, although he did have doubts. Uh, there's no doubt he had doubts. Now, did you stay after the 10,000 meters in Munich? And did you stay to watch Frank and Jack race the marathon? Absolutely did. Okay. So you were the, where were you when, when Frank won? I was in the athlete section, which was in the nosebleed section of one corner of the stadium. Okay. 
they gave uh, athletes in track and field this, uh, you know, upbeat, up uh, top part of the stadium on the corner. And uh, so I, it ended up being a good strategic thing for the marathon because I climbed all the way up to the top where nobody was. And uh, I could look out and see the runners coming towards. Oh, approaching to, even before they got to the stadium, you could see them. Yeah, and, and, and the one incident that, uh, that this story that I'm about to tell highlights is the imposter situation in which um, I'll tell you how it related. So I'm up there and it's about time that Frank should be coming and nobody's on the road. Of course, it was over 70 degrees and very humid. So it's a little slower than Frank had been running. But there he turns the corner and he's about half a mile away. But I knew it was Frank. I mean, you know your buddy's yeah, strong. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I knew it was Frank. I knew he was in first place. It was just joyous. So I yelled to my friends, Frank's in first. And so he moves his way towards, and there's not anybody really close to him. Uh, he, he's got uh, well over a minute. I, I don't know exactly how much, but um, he comes in, and the course went in this lower level of the stadium. So they were running right below us. And you could see them running right below us until they got to a rampway where spectators would come into the stadium. Okay. So I couldn't see him on this bridge because the bridge was just below me. And uh, so he, he goes into that tunnel and then goes into the stadium. So then I'm looking at the stadium and all of a sudden this other guy comes out on the track. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on here? And so he starts running. This other guy starts running around the track. And then Frank comes on the track. And I knew that something was amiss. And, uh, and so they let, the officials let, let this guy run a victory, run around the track and then start a victory lap. And about that time, they realized that this guy's number was a forged number. Wow. And it wasn't even a good forgery. Yeah, yeah, just magic marker yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, but the naivete of the officials to think that nobody would even try something like that. But it it actually robbed Frank of his uh, acclaim, especially during that last lap of, uh, of the stadium and, and during a victory lap. But Frank uh, knew he was in first place, probably. Oh, absolutely. He yeah. knew he was. And he was run, wondering what the heck was going on with this other guy, too. And did the, the officials recover in time to set up a tape, a finish line tape for Frank or not? You know, I don't remember that. Part. Yeah, I don't remember because I, I, I remember as a kid watching it on TV. And I don't I think the TV commentators ignored the imposter part of the story. Right. Because it was an American TV. Well, you know, but. Eric Siegel, uh, the, the playwright, yeah. uh, Eric Siegel, who was a marathoner, uh, definitely got berserk about that whole thing because he knew Frank. Eric Siegel actually taught at Yale and he knew Frank from having worked out on the Yale track when Frank was working out. So uh, he ab absolutely went ballistic on the air about the imposter. Uh, but the uh, announcer... Oh.
announcers. I've got to look up that old tape then. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the announcers in the stadium didn't know who the heck it was, so they didn't even announce the other guy. But the crowd uh, responded to the guy, first guy. Sure. And really didn't give Frank much, uh, much acclaim. <laughs> and was that a great celebration that night? Uh, Frank was absolutely whooped. Um, well, he was. I, he and I uh, came back into the Olympic Village together, and uh, and we walked together to uh, to our rooms, and uh, and uh, you know uh, we just bantered back and forth about what what a great day it was. But but Frank just he had been drained by the whole thing, including the uh, many many interviews afterwards. Right, so right. Forth. But uh, so I. Uh, we didn't, uh, we weren't able to get together for a celebration. After. Oh man. Wow. That, you know, that really, as you know, that, that launched the golden era of American running and uh, no, and that really did to my memory that that really catapulted recreational running in the country too, where all of a sudden people said, Hey, wow, that's, oh, that's pretty interesting. Um, well, the numbers really didn't increase until around Montreal time. So the, uh, Yes, there was an uptick, but it wasn't a dramatic uptick um, until around uh, uh, Montreal. And, and that's when the big first running boom really started. And so your, your timing on the running store is just a little bit too early then, right? It was, it was Yeah, it, it was way too early. Yeah. Uh, there, there just weren't enough runners to support a running store. And that's why I developed my uh, consultations, my coaching programs, my retreats at Lake Tahoe and other areas, the uh, schools, running schools that I've done, and uh, the training groups uh, all over the place. Uh, they've expanded now to other countries. It's uh, really a great. wonderful world of, uh, of running. Well, good. You've been so generous with your time. We're, we're, we'll hit you with, uh, we've done this with a couple of our other podcast guests. We'll, we'll hit you with a couple of really quick questions to, to wrap up, if that's all right with you. Sure. All right. Uh, how about um, favorite book? You're not allowed to say one of your own books. But. Well, uh, I have to say that the uh, the Spark book has done more for me. And I go back over and over again because it's, the research is so well documented and it explains the benefits so well. All right. But I will say that the story of the human body is really another one that's so well documented. And it both of those two books together. All right, we're gonna make sure we link out to those in our newsletter. Uh, favorite movie of all time? Actually, McFarlane. Uh, it, it chronicles uh, this group of uh, high school cross-country runners, Hispanics, and uh, Kevin Costner is their coach. Really a fantastic true story, very inspirational. I uh, love that story. Running Brave is the other one too, Billy okay. Mills' story. Billy. Yeah, that's amazing. What a class act. Yeah. Um, no, McFarland is great. That's uh, it's underrated, but it, the great characters in there, and our kid. We have three kids, and they are not runners, but they they ate up every second of that movie. So I love that one. All right, if you can have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who you have not met yet, who would you who would you pick? One person. Yes. That I that I haven't met. Uh, well. Uh, you know, it, it would be, uh, I guess it would have to be President Obama. I, I have a lot of respect for him. Catherine Switzer said the same thing. So you guys are, you guys are sharing a brain there. All right, morning runner or evening runner? Uh, all of the above. Um, oh, okay. 
I actually yeah. run several times a day. Uh, and, uh, and if I don't run on a given day, I usually walk over 15,000 steps. So I found that getting out of my chair regularly inspires me to do all of my work projects much better. Great. Uh, do you run with music, podcast, none of the above? I don't uh, run with music. Um, I will say, though, that I uh, will sometimes run with an app that has music in the background called Charge Running. It's uh, live uh, workouts, and it's really motivating. Uh, and you can see the distances that the people that are running the same time you are, are putting in. And uh, they all, people text various messages. It, it's a really upbeat uh, workout mode, charge oh, running. Oh, I've, I've, I've got to look that up. You're about the third person that's mentioned that to me and all three have said positive things about it. Yeah, it's a good one. Do more research than that. All right, um, best mentor of your life. Last question. Well, uh, I, I'll have to go rapid fire on three. Great. My, my best friend, Jeff Hollister, his coach, Bill Bowerman, and uh, my father, uh, Elliot Galloway, uh, but the, the fourth would be Billy Mills, who uh, I've, uh, I met early in, in my running career, and I still uh, uh, connect with him from time to time. Just a great person. Oh, that's an amazing story. We, um, in our newsletter, we linked to that, uh, his Olympic gold, total surprise Olympic gold, one of the most amazing performances of all time. Seems like just a class act, smart, cool guy. Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned him. Absolutely. Well, you're the best for putting up with us. Um, but thank you so much, Jeff. It, it's a, a true pleasure to have this conversation and I hope we can stay in touch and share ideas again. I hope so too. So please uh, let me know. And uh, I really want to help people improve the quality of their lives. That's what my mission is. We are steering people your way. Thank you. All right. Take care now, Jeff.